We have a budget meeting tonight uh, for the 2018. This was scheduled a couple of weeks ago, but it got pushed out to tonight. And so if you are part of our church and you want to know uh, how we spend our money or how we're planning on spending for 2018, and you want to have your say in that, I would encourage you to be back tonight following the evening service. We'll be presenting the budget and voting on it. So make plans to be here for that. And then a couple of other announcements. We like to have activities around here. And we have some exciting ones coming up, uh, one uh, set for the ladies and another set for the men. Uh, ladies, you have a, a spa night coming up. And um, my wife has been watching videos on how to give a facial. And um, she's been practicing. No, she has not been practicing on me. <laughs> that is not true. I won't let her. She's, she's asked, but no. I, um, January 4th. I believe that's this coming Thursday. Is that right, Angela? Where are you at? Is that right? At uh, 7? 7 p.m. So uh, make note of that, and you'll want to come and be part. And then men, um, ladies like to get their face all fixed up and nice and pretty. Us guys, we like to eat. And so uh, we have uh, our men's rally coming up January 20th. That's a Saturday. I believe it uh, starts at 5 p.m. The time's in the bulletin there. And... Uh, we're going to be eating bacon stuffed burgers. Did I say the magic words? Bacon stuffed burgers. So we're going to be eating uh, in all the fixings, and then we'll have uh, some skits, and we'll have uh, some preaching. And so it'll probably be about a two-hour ordeal, 5 to 7 p.m. thereabouts. So uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the lobby. The cost is in your bulletin. And so we'll probably collect the money the day of. But uh, plan on coming to that. Bring your boys with you. We'll have a good time. That's January 20th. And so take note of that. Ephesians 5. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the final Sunday morning of 2017. We're going to preach our last installment in the Lift Him Up series. And then next week we'll unveil the new theme for uh, the year. And so we're going to read Ephesians 5, 21 through 26 responsively, and then we'll skip down Ephesians 6 and read 1 through 4 responsively. I'll be doing all the odd verse reading alone. We'll be doing the even verse reading together. Beginning in verse 21, the Bible says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Together, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll look at this topic, lifting up Christ at home. God, I ask today that you help us uh, as we look at uh, such a vital, important, fundamental staple of our society and, Lord, as as a creation. Lord, the very first institution you created was the home. And Lord, our world around us has really tried to confuse Christians on the structure, the order, the importance. Lord, even the goal and purpose of the home. And so Lord, as we 
look at this thought, I pray that we would come with hearts that are open and minds that are willing to make adjustments and changes so that, Lord, we can maximize what you have called us to do and who you've called us to be. I pray, Lord, excuses like, well, that's just who I am would be set to the side. That's just how I've always done it would be set to the side. Lord, or that's how, uh, that's the type of home I was raised in, so that's all I know. We'd set that to the side and we would try our best to engraft your model into our hearts. Lord, may we inject you, insert you in the very center of every relationship, especially those at home as we look at that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to do my best to keep my introductory thoughts very short because I've got a whole lot in the body of the message I want to get to. Um, I love to speak on the home. Love it. Um, My goal today is to give everybody here, everybody here, something that will help them. If you're here today and you're not married, uh, I hope to give you something that will help you. If you're here today and uh, you uh, don't have any children, I hope to give you something today that will uh, still help you. There may be a person or two in the auditorium that you walk out and you feel as though the sermon wasn't real relevant to you, but I will say this, is that teaching and preaching on the home and the structure of the home, it is needed. It is so needed. Um, We live in a day and time where our home structure, I'm talking about as a country, and really even as a world, is not only under siege, it's been under siege for decades, and, and really it's been under siege since God created it, but... Satan is beginning to win the battle against the home. He's turned the tide, and there are now more or just as many single-parent homes and situations uh, as there are uh, married couples. And then even within the married couples, um, it's just like a a warped tire going down the road. It it just doesn't really quite roll roll properly because um, uh, we're not following God's model in God's way. Uh, let me just say up front, before we get into it, that I'm going to be saying some things today that uh, would be labeled politically incorrect, uh, would be labeled old-fashioned or out of style, uh, but I'll challenge you with this. Um, find a couple for me that is doing it, the biblical model that is miserable, and bring them to me and I'll change. You can't. You find a couple that does it the Bible way, they're... They're joyous. They're happy every time. Now, I can show you dozens and dozens and dozens of couples that are doing it the world's way and they're miserable. I can take you down to a divorce court. I can show you marriages that are in ruins and they're not following God's model. But you can't find a couple in the divorce court that has and is following God's model. Marriages just don't end up there. And so I let the results and the proof speak for itself I've given that challenge out before, both in my Sunday school class and and then uh, in church. And I've been giving that challenge in churches and Sunday school classes for years in multiple locations. Never had anybody take me up on it, my guess is because um, there just isn't a couple that's following the biblical model or parents that are following the biblical model or children that are following the biblical model that are flat out miserable. There is a joy God puts in your heart when you do it His way. And so today we're going to look at this. Now, I also want to say, by way of introduction, that um, there, are, uh, there is a traditional common way that preachers and teachers teach Ephesians 5 and 6. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with teaching it those ways. In fact, I've got dozens of lessons upstairs in my office that are more of the traditional model of teaching and preaching Ephesians 5 and 6. But 
Today I'm going to kind of give this to you in a way that I have never taught these passages before. And there's a good chance that unless you've just read dozens of books or happened to read the right book or uh, sat under a lecture or a sermon that uh, maybe gave it this way, you've probably, even if you've gone to church for years, you've probably never heard these passages quite taught or preached like I'm going to be giving them out uh, this morning because uh, uh, I think we uh, too oftentimes put the emphasis on the relationship instead of the Christ that is to be at the center of the relationships. And so while we'll talk about the relationships today, we're going to put more emphasis on the, the God of the uh, inside of the relationships and how to get Him in the middle of the relationship than we are the actual relationship. So um, let's jump right in this morning and uh, let's look at three aspects of the home uh, that uh, uh, that will help us uh, be uh, uh, more likely to lift up Christ at home. We want to lift up Christ at home and we want to do that by engrafting his characteristics and his commands into everything that goes on in our home lives. So if you're taking notes, number one, notice I must elevate Christ in my marriage. I must elevate Christ in my marriage. So if you're here today and you're married, this is for you. If you're here today and you hope to one day get married, this is uh, for you. If you're here today and you are helping other people out who ha- who are married, maybe grandchildren or children, and they come to you for advice, whether or not you're married, this is for you. And let's just be reminded that Ephesians 5 and 6 was written by a man who was single. Now, how could a guy who wasn't married give the most profound marriage advice that's ever been given? Because God told him to write it down. This is God's marital instruction. However, Paul probably counseled a lot of broken marriages, even as a single man, because he had the biblical model. And so uh, if you're here today and you either have hopes of one day getting married or you are married or you know people that are married, then uh, then I would encourage you to sit up straight and listen uh, very intently. I'm going to give you an A, B, and a C here talking about elevating Christ in our marriages. Letter A, notice the couple's reverence. The couple's reverence. Look, look back with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 20. Now, let me, let me show you how I have read this verse in my studies and preparation and teaching. Here you go. Ready? Submitting yourselves. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Here's how I'm going to read it today. Ready? Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Now, while you need to submit one to another in a marriage, we'll look at it momentarily that primarily it is the wife's role to submit, but men, there are plenty of times where you need to submit under uh, the desire and will of your wife. To sit there and think that you can have a home where I'm the, I'm the king of the home and I sit on the throne and it's my way or the highway. You're just not living in a reality. Doesn't work that way. I've often said that I am the head of the home and my wife is the neck that turns the head. Um, we, um, we live in a day and time where uh, there is, seems to be competition at the top. And there, there ought to be competition, but it ought to be a competition to see who can be the easiest to get along with and the best at fulfilling their biblical role. Not a competition to see who can be in charge. Not a competition to uh, try to wield your power in the home and wield your way. How do you do that? Well, you do so by putting on or living inside of the fear of God. The fear of God. Having a cooperative marriage comes naturally when you put on 
or live inside of God's fear. What does that even mean? Is that just preacher jargon? Is that just preacher talk? Uh, well, let me give you some uh, practical things here. Hold your place in Ephesians 5 and turn over to Proverbs. We're going to look at several verses in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's do a little study uh, briefly and quickly on what it means to fear God. What it means to live inside of God's fear. Because if I'm going to naturally submit to my wife when I'm supposed to, and she's naturally going to submit to me when she's supposed to, if that's going to be a natural reflex in our marriage, then I've got to live inside of God's fear. If I'm not living inside of and understanding the fear of the Lord, I cannot and will not do that naturally. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says there, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a whole bunch of foolishness that goes on in marriages, and I'm wondering if it's because that uh, they despise godly marital counsel, godly marital wisdom, godly marital instruction. So what is the beginning of marital knowledge and marital wisdom and marital instruction? It's the fear of the Lord. When you learn to reverence God and put Him first and submit to Him, boy, submitting to each other comes a whole lot easier. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that we're to dwell with our wives' men according to knowledge. Um, one of the things I love about my wife is that she is a total mystery to me. I've been married to her for ten and a half years now, and there are still... Things about her that I am discovering. There are things about her I just can't quite figure out. Now, ladies, us men, we're pretty simple. We've got a few basic needs. You feed us, you take care of our needs. We're pretty scheduled, most of us, right? We're pretty simple to figure out. You almost can, like, finish our sentences for us because we say the same hundred phrases in a circle, right? Um, but you women are a little bit more complicated. God made you that way on purpose. Why? Because when I've been married to Angela for 50 years, I'm still going to be discovering things about her. There's a mystery there. And if I'm going to dwell with her according to knowledge, and I've got to live under or inside of the fear of the Lord. Turn to, uh, look, look down Proverbs 1, look down at verse 29. For that they, they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. I've had couples come into my office and tell me, well, we're just not in love with each other anymore. Well, is that because you chose not to live in the fear of the Lord and you began to hate knowledge? You began to hate knowledge, proper knowledge, godly knowledge. I don't want to twist Proverbs 1 out of context. And when we read Proverbs 1, normally marriage isn't at the top of our mind. But again, Ephesians 5.20 tells us we're to submit to, uh, one to another in the fear of God. So we need to properly understand this concept of submitting to each other while living in the fear of God. Now, let me just also say here that uh, in a marriage, it takes both parties making an effort. Both parties making an effort. It's really hard if one person's living under the fear of God and the other person is being a selfish brat. Some of you here today, you've been through that. And I'm sorry. I really am. I'm sorry. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Let's look at this at another angle. Again, I'm trying to make 
living in the fear of God practical for you? Living under that reverence. And when I say the fear of God, that doesn't mean you walk around scared that He's going to bop you over the head with some kind of, you know, club. Alright? This isn't God uh, waiting for you to mess up saying, whack! He can hit you over the head. And you're afraid of that. That's not what I mean by the fear of God. I fear my, I feared my dad as a child. When I was little, I was afraid of him spanking me. Right? For being bad. But it got to a point in my life where I loved him on such a level that I was afraid of letting him down. There was a love there that caused me to reverence him or fear him. And my dad uh, looking at me and saying, son, I'm disappointed in you, hurt more than any spanking that he could give me. And that is a graduate level of a fear of God. Yes, God will punish you if you step out of line. He's usually patient with you and long-suffering. But if you continue to step out of line and you're one of his children, he's going to correct you. He's going to chastise you. He's going to bring you back in line. But it ought to grow to a place where you have such a deep respect and reverence for God that you uh, fear him, you reverence him, just like you would uh, a father who has raised you right or uh, a, a mentor in your life who you you look up, excuse me, you look up to. Now with that in mind, look at Proverbs 8.13. For the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, the list we're about to read here are all enemies in marriage. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Hmm. Now, I'm looking back at now, some tough times in my marriage over ten years. We've had our bumps in the road like any marriage does. And there have been times where there was hate and evil and pride, and arrogancy, and a froward mouth on my part. The Bible says here that the fear of the Lord is to hate those things. Sounds like to me that if I fear the Lord properly, and I put Him at the center of my marriage, now I'm going to have a little bit easier time submitting to my wife, and she's going to have an easier time submitting to me when she's supposed to. I'm just saying today that if you're too constantly at each other's throat, it's probably because you don't really fear the Lord the way you're supposed to. One or both of you, that would be. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. Oh, I love this verse in context of marriage. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. You know why so many couples land in divorce court three, four, five, ten, fifteen years in? They don't fear the Lord. And so the, the, the years of the wicked, their marriage has been shortened. I look at a couple like the Ancalcies back here, been married for 58 years. You know why? I walk into Panera Bread over here on Bridgeport Ave and I see Mike studying his Bible. That's what he does with his retired time. Marie's Madly in love with her Savior. There's a fear of the Lord there. My uh, grandparents were married for over 60 years on my mom's side. My, mo- my grandmother was a soul winner. Up until uh, the year she got sick, a year before she died, she was taking la- young ladies out in their 20s and 30s and training them how to lead souls to Christ. She was the first one to meet you at the door and shake your hand. Just a loving, godly woman. She feared the Lord. It prolonged her marriage. I'm saying today that if you're going to submit one to another in the fear of God, uh, submit, submit yourselves one to another, you're going to have to do so by living inside of the fear of God. How do you do that? You elevate Christ. 
you elevate him in your marriage. All right, let's get specific here about the roles in marriage or the, the, the individuals within a marriage. Let her be notice the wife's respect. Turn back over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're done in Proverbs there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says there, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, I have read, studied, memorized, taught these verses, preached these verses more times than I can even remember. Here's how I have read these verses as I have taught them. Ready? Look back at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Today, the way I want to read these verses, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24. Uh, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Uh, uh, ladies, i got to tell you here that uh, it, it, the emphasis ought to be put on, not on your submission or duty to submit to your husband, but rather your duty to submit to your Lord. Uh, and if you can submit to the Lord, it will be a whole lot easier for you to submit to your flawed, sinful, boneheaded, hard to get along with, stinky husband. Um, if you are submitting to a God who is perfect and flawless and without error and, and, and always loves you and always takes care of you and always provides for you and always does what's best, if you can learn how to submit to Him, then coming under and submitting to your husband will be a whole lot easier. will be a whole lot easier. Now, as soon as I say that, there's someone in the crowd who thinks, um, submitting to your husband, that's so 2,000 years ago. This is 2017. Here's what I'd say to you. All right. Um, If I was driving down Main Street Putney after church and I saw a two-headed dog, I'd say, that thing's weird. That thing is deformed. That is strange. You'd only have one head. Only have one head. If um, if the side decides it wants to become a head, you've got a problem. God told Eve in the Garden of Eden that she was to be Adam's completer, his helpmeet. Not his computer, his completer. Just because you have the role of being the submissive wife, that does not make you less of a person. It just means you have a different role. I have a couple of, um, oh, I have a staff here that works for me, Pastor Mike, Pastor Dave, Miss Rachel, Pastor, Mike, Pastor Mike's wife, and then Miss Jeannie Wolf. You know, when it comes to being humans, Pastor Mike is just as much of a human as I am. So is Pastor Dave, so is Miss Jeannie, so is Miss Rachel. I'm not more of a human, and I'm not more important in the grand scheme of things than they are. Someone's got to be in charge. Now, if I came to work and everyone tried to be in charge and everyone tried to call the shots, we'd have conflict, we'd have problems. There can really only be one leader in the workplace. We all understand that, right? It doesn't make me better than them. It's just my role. It's just their role. We can accept that for the workplace, but we have a hard time accepting that inside the structure of the home. 
Now, you may be in a marriage where your husband's personality is laid back, and ma'am, you're the go-getter, get-her-done type attitude. It doesn't matter. You have to learn how to squelch those personality quirks and let your husband be the leader, and you've got to submit. That doesn't make him better than you. It doesn't make him more of a human than you are. It just means that's your role. And I wonder if God did not give this hard role to the wife because he knew that she would be able to do it. Don't buck it. Don't push away from it. That's Satan trying to prowl on your marriage. You say, well, how do I do that? You do that instead of looking at your husband as being a flawed, sinful human. You look at him and say, I am to submit to my husband just like I'm supposed to submit to the Lord. It's the leadership line. I'm sure if you've gone to church before, you've probably seen the leadership line. God's at the top, and then you've got all these people that fall down one under the other. And if one of them steps out of line, you stay in line with God. Stay in line with God. God is ultimately your leader. The husband is supposed to submit to Christ, and then you're supposed to submit to your husband. You're supposed to follow your husband as he follows the Lord. Ultimately, your husband is um, uh, responsible for following the Lord and leading you, but you are to follow along your husband. The emphasis here is not on you following your husband. It's on you following the Lord, and he'll give you the grace to put up with your husband when he is sinful and he's problematic and he's hard to get along with. Why? Because the Lord is the one that's following you. I look um, at, uh, I don't know that she's here today, but uh, Miss Joan Surrett, who comes here. How long has your mom and dad been married, Mike? 60 years? Joan got saved and began to pray for her husband. Because of her submissive spirit, desire to follow the Lord and follow Him and be submissive to Him. Just a few years ago, your dad got saved, Mike. What a powerful thing. Powerful thing. Mike's dad's going to be in heaven because Joan was willing to say, I'm going to submit to my husband just like I submit to the Lord. Number, uh, letter uh, C there, we see the husband's role model. Husband's role model. Look down at verse 25 and verse 26. And we're, going, we're not going to put the emphasis on the husband. We're going to put it on the Lord here. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. I'm going to say something here that I hope will be a light bulb moment for many of you. I'm talking about people who have been coming to church here for 30, 40 years. I hope this will be a light bulb moment for you. The Lord recently showed me this in some reading I was doing, and it was a light bulb moment for me. If I were to ask you what the goal in marriage is, what would you say? Partnership? Companionship? That is not the goal in marriage. Husbands, if I were to ask you what is your primary responsibility given by God to you in marriage, you know what I would have said sometime back was, it's to love my wife. Now you are to love your wife. It says right there, husbands, love your wives. But the love is just a tool. The love is a tool. The love is the opening of the channel so that you can sanctify and you can wash. Here's how you ought to live your lives, husbands. One day, Angela, you put your wife's name there, one day Angela is going to stand before a holy God 
she is going to give an account for the way she lived her life without me. It is my duty to prepare her for that day. That's my primary goal in being married. It's not to go on bed and breakfast getaways, although we do that sometimes. It's not to have luxurious vacations. Those are fun. It's not to hold hands and kiss. That's great. That's what married couples do. It's not that we have a uh, sewn at the hip mentality. That's great. You ought to have that. You ought to push for it. You ought to want it. Those things, the holding hands, the, the, the trips, that is part of loving your wife so that you can wash her, so that you can cleanse her, so that you can sanctify her, so that one day she can stand before God and give account of her life in a way that pleases the Lord. The truth is that Angela, if, we get, if, we, if we're married for 50 or 60 years, we're going to be together much, much longer than we were single. That means I've got the greatest responsibility of preparing my wife to be ready for that. Say, oh, pastor, my wife is cantankerous. She's hard to get along with. She's mouthy. She's bossy. Love her. Love her. Love her. It doesn't matter. Love her. You love her and 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 you love her. And when you can, when that opens up a door, you sanctify and you cleanse. By the way, wives, you have the same responsibility to prepare your husband for the Lord. Don't get in his way. Don't pull him down. Don't, don't uh, discourage him from going to church. Don't uh, say things that, that, that tear down his walk. Don't call him a Pharisee and a hypocrite when uh, he, his life isn't just perfect. You encourage and you push and you prod and you f- uh, fan the flames of spirituality. Why? Because Christ Christ is our role model, men. He's our role model. Just like Christ loves the church, He washes it, He sanctifies it, He prepares it. How? Through the washing of the water of God's Word. Just like that's done. So that one day, Christ can say to His Father, Here is my bride, the church. She's perfect. She's whole. She's spotless. She's pure. One day, men, you're going to stand before God and you're going to say, Here's my wife. I've done everything I can to prepare her. That is, the, that is the role in marriage. You know, when you think in those terms, instead of having fun getaways, and, 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 and you know, a lot of husbands, their definition of a successful marriage is, I don't fight with my wife anymore. Look, I hope you get to that level where there's lot, not a lot of conflict. You've been married 30, 40 years, you might be at that spot. You're newlywed, you're probably figuring out how to get there. And you wonder if that's ever going to come, Right? Uh, but uh, the goal is not conflict resolution. While you want that, and that's a good thing, the goal is preparation for eternity. You're going to be married for 50 years. You're going to live in heaven for millions and millions and billions of years. Are you preparing each other for that? Number two, we see I must elevate Christ to my children. I must elevate Christ to my children. We're talking about lifting up Christ at, at home putting him at the very center of our home. Letter A, notice, avoid a sinful environment. Avoid a sinful environment. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Such a key verse here. It says, And ye fathers, and that root word there implies a parental couple. Fathers is plural. Father and mother. Ye parents or ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Provoke not your children to wrath. The, the root word for provoke is the same root word as wrath. Wrath not your children 
to wrath. How do we provoke our children to wrath? How do we entice? Is this when dad is just picking on his son a little too much and gets them all riled up? That's not really what this is talking about, although you ought not do that. I'm guilty of that sometimes. Sometimes I'll pick on Matthew about girls. He's eight. And uh, he thinks that girls are, you know, got cooties or something, right? And uh, I'll say, you like such and such. Ooh. Ah, leave me alone. He, he doesn't start there, but I can get him there pretty quick, right? Um, and then I, you know, I get the hand in the back of the head from my wife. You need to submit. No. I'm just teasing. Kind of. Um, that's not really what this is talking about. This is talking about raising children who become wrathful, hateful, sin-filled, contaminated adults. That's not what we want. Now, I will say this. All right, I always need to make sure I get this disclaimer in here. You could do everything right. Or you could almost do everything right. And your children could go find the cesspool of sin anyway. That can happen. Right? I understand that. And so if you uh, tried your very best to raise godly children and you're here today and you had children didn't turn out right, I'm not throwing stones at you. All right? But oftentimes, and i got to even say the large majority of the times, that children grow up and they live a contaminated, wrathful, sinful lifestyle, it's because mom and dad provoked their children to wrath. And if you're here today and you got small children, or maybe you have influence over some grandchildren, you want to do your very best and not provoke, not raise wrathful children. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to inject Christ in your home life. Exodus chapter 34 verse 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that uh, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children and unto the third and to the fourth generation. This is talking about your private at home sins being handed down. Generation after generation after generations. Three and four generations. And not to get real psychological here, but I have heard of parents uh, who will adopt a child uh, from another part of the world and they can't figure out why this particular child struggles with certain things when their children don't. And I believe that it's because this is the sin of the father being passed down to the third and fourth generation, just as Exodus explains here. And so you've got to work very, very, very hard if you know that you have besetting sins to help your children get past those and overcome those. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, you, in part, uh, one of the things Angel and I work on doing is we know what our besetting sins are as humans. We are working on helping our children memorize verses so that we can put a spiritual wall around them and help guard them and protect them from that. I would highly recommend that you do that. How do we provoke our children to wrath? How do we provoke our children to wrath? Well, by accepting sin and being comfortable with it in the presence of our home. You're watching TV and someone curses. What do you do about it? You just accept it? Ah, uh, you know, you're going to have to hear it at some point. Or are you saying, no, 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 we're not going to have that here inside the walls of this home. Um, you, uh, you tell a dirty joke, Dad. Well, you know, I heard it at work, I thought it was funny, and the kids, uh, kids, uh, they're going to hear this stuff at school anyway, what's it matter? No, 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 your home's got to be a a safe haven. They may hear it at school, but they need to know it doesn't fly at home. Why? We're not provoking our children to wrath, contamination. How do we 
How do we avoid a, a sinful environment? Well, here's another idea. By having an angry, or rather, how do we have this sinful environment? By having an angry and out of control spirit. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You look at a Old Testament city where there were no airplanes or helicopters to air raid, right? The wall put this protection, uh, uh, kept ground troops out and gave them that barrier protection. What this verse is saying, sir, is that if you can't control your temper, ma'am, you can't control your out, your, your spirit, in essence, you are basically a home without a defense system. You have no defense system. Uh, a Satan can come in and ravage and, and tear apart and hurt whenever he wants. Why? Because you just fly off the handle all the time. You do that, you are provoking your children to live a life of wrath. You've got to learn to get control of that spirit. You've got to ask God to help give you victory in that area. How else do we provoke our children to wrath? Uh, here's another idea. By turning a blind eye to your children's sin. Turning a blind eye to your children's sin. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. We live in a day and age where if uh, the teacher accuses of our child of doing something, we take our children's side. That's dangerous. All right, My little junior would never... Oh, really? Is that so? A couple weeks ago, I shared how I was sheltered growing up. I put pictures on the screen and explained what that word sheltered means. But my parents did everything they could to raise me right. I got in trouble at school a few times, and i got to tell you, about 95% of the time, the teacher's account was accurate. And if you're honest with yourself, that's true for you too. Is it ever true that a teacher gets a spirit bent out of shape and and pours out on a child in an unjust way. It happens. It happens. How do you deal with that? Well, let me just share this with you. i got time to tell this, I think, real quick. In the seventh grade, I uh, uh, was in the gym playing basketball during uh, lunch break. Finished up my lunch, went there and played basketball. We had a rule at our Christian school that you had to have your shirt tail in when uh, you left the gym. And um, so I came up the stairs... My shirt tail was out. And uh, Mrs. Davis, who was like the Nazi of the school, right? She was just like the firm, rules, rules, rules. I guess you'd call her the, the Barney Fife of the school. She's standing in the hallway. My mom and dad, my dad was a school administrator. My mom was a substitute teaching that day. And so they're there in that uh, kind of hallway area. And I came up the stairs and my shirt tail's out. And Mrs. Davis says, Richard, go tuck your shirt in. I look at her and I said, yes, ma'am. And so I, I was walking toward the cubby holes, but away from the bathroom so I could set my books down so that I could go to the bathroom and tuck my shirt in. There was nowhere in the bathroom to put the books. It was a small bathroom. And um, Mrs. Davis stopped me, my parents standing about 15 feet away, and she stood toe-to-toe with me, and she just verbally berated me. She said, I told you to go tuck your shirt in, and you were directly disobeying me. That's five demerits for disobeying me and another five for your shirt tail being out. You go in that bathroom. And I said, but I've got, you don't talk back to me, young man. My parents are standing right there watching the whole thing. You know what my parents did? Nothing. You said, but your parents should have given her. Your dad should have fired her. On the way home that day, 
sitting in the back seat with my mom and dad, I brought that up and I said, why didn't you guys step in? And my dad was really quiet. He said this to me. He said, Richard, in life you're going to learn that people are going to treat you wrong and you need to learn how to handle it. You need to learn how to deal with it. I found out years later that my dad sat Mrs. Davis down as a parent, him as a parent, not her boss, and discussed the situation with her. But in front of me, they were together. They were together. You, um, you turn a blind eye to your children's sin and you seem to think that your child is well-behaved and never makes any mistakes. My friend, you are setting your children up to live a life of wrath and contamination and failure. The Bible tells us that foolishness is bound in your child's heart. Born with foolishness. It says, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. You need to have a strong system of discipline that's consistent in your home. Don't you turn a blind eye to your children's sin. You, you, you punish that out of them and you set them up to have integrity. You don't tolerate lying and bad attitudes. And if you've got small children in here, the word no ought to be treated like a curse word in your home. You don't let them tell you no. Because foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. Let her be. We see in advance, advance a, a spiritual climate. Advance a spiritual climate. I move, I move quickly here. Look down at verse 4 of Ephesians 6. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now that word but provides contrast. Instead of bringing your children up to, to be wrathful, you are instead, in contrast to, you're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, what does that word nurture mean? It means to discipline to train, to disciple. It means instruction, discipline, or punishment. You are to nurture them in the Lord. That word admonition. To instruct, to teach, to warn. How are we to elevate Christ in their lives? We're to, we're to do that by nurturing them or training them to love God. We're to admonish them or teach them to respect and trust their Creator and Savior. When it's time for me to punish Matthew or April and they've done wrong, I'll go in their room and uh, first I, I send them to their room and I have a cool down time. I don't go in in a hot, angry, upset manner. Uh, even if I think I'm not upset, I'll still take a few minutes to just check my spirit, double check, triple check. I'll go in my room and I'll get down on my knees and I'll pray and I'll ask the Lord to give me wisdom to, to discipline my child in a way that pleases Him. And then I walk into my child's room and I, I sit down next to him. And ask them what they did that was wrong. And if they say, well, I was playing with the ball in the hallway, I say, no, 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 that's not why you're in trouble. It's not wrong to play with the ball in the hallway. It's wrong because you disobeyed me when I told you not to. Now, why are you in trouble? Because I disobeyed. Okay. Very good. Now, why is it wrong to disobey? You know what the answer is? You know the answer they know to give? Because the Bible says it's wrong. Not because Daddy said it's wrong. The truth is, one day they're not going to be under my rule. They're going to be out on their own. Daddy's not going to be there to keep an eye on them. But God always sees. And if they can know that I don't disobey because God's watching me, boy, that's going to stay with them well into their 20s and 30s and 40s. You make it about the Bible. You make it about God. You, what are you doing? You're nurturing them and you're admonishing them in the Lord. In the Lord. 
You're going to fail your children at some point in some way, but He'll never fail them. He'll never let them down. You're to advance a spiritual climate. How do you do that? Dad, you've got to be the leader at home. There are some of you in this room, there are several of you in this room, where the wife knows more about the Bible than the husband. You say, well, how am I supposed to be the spiritual leader when my wife knows more? You better get in your Bible and start reading, sir. You better fall in love with God's Word. You better get to know it real fast. You get books, uh, and I'll give you a list if you'd like, about marriage. And you read them about God's model of marriage. And you learn how to be a godly husband. You learn how to be a godly father. And you lead. You lead. Ma'am, I'll tell you this, is that uh, even if your husband doesn't know as much as you, you still come under and you read your Bible. And uh, uh, a good thing to do is say, is, hey, hey, sweetheart, I was wondering, I was reading this verse, I don't quite know what it means. Can, can you study it and let me know what you think? Instead of saying, well, let me tell you what that says. Yeah! That's not the attitude. You're not to be the spiritual leader, ma'am, even if you know more of the Bible than he does. You encourage him and let him lead you so that, sir, you can lead your family. And part of this is by praying with your children before they go to bed every night. Having them pray, teaching them how to pray. Having a time where you read the Bible together as a family. You know, it's awesome living in 2017. We have so much technology at our fingertips. There are some nights where my family goes in the living room and we sit on the couch and we open up the YouTube app on our TV and we'll watch a Bible story together as our family devotions. Or we'll watch, uh, we'll find some little video that explains some part of the Bible that's neat. And we'll watch that together. And the kids are just sucked into it. You don't have to be sitting there at the dinner table keeping them from their Xbox going, uh, now we read from the book of Isaiah chapter 45. You know what your children are doing? I hate the Bible. Make the Bible fun. Lead. Lead. Be creative. Advance a spiritual climate. All right, number three. Notice I am to elevate Christ with my parents. I'm to elevate Christ with my parents. All right, letter A. Most of our children are back in junior church. I think we might have a couple of kids in the auditorium. And so if you are still living at home and mom and dad are paying all the bills, then listen up closely here. Letter A, obedience through perspective. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 6. Obedience through perspective. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. Why? For this is right. Children who live at home and rely on mom and dad to provide for them must obey their parents as though the Lord were standing in dad or mom's shoes. I think about my father who was saved at the age of 14 or 15 walking across uh, a church parking lot or where a church was meeting parking lot. A man stopped him and led him to the Lord. His mom, uh, never I don't believe his mom ever did get saved. She's passed away now, sadly. Uh, and she did not like the fact that my dad went to church, but tolerated it and let him go. But if there was a time where mom looked at him while he was living under her roof and said, we're having a family gathering this evening, I would rather you not go to church, then my father came under and followed his mother's wishes and didn't go to church. He could have been rebugged. He said, I'm going anyway. But no, he was obedient in the Lord. Obedient in the Lord. Children, it's easy to obey your parents when they say, get in the car, we're going to go get an ice cream cone. It's a little bit harder to obey your parents when they say take out the trash and it's five degrees outside. It's a little bit harder to obey your parents when they tell you to go clean your room or to turn off the TV. 
The Bible says you're to obey them as though God Himself were your, was, your, was your dad at home. You're to obey mom and dad as though mom and dad, uh, mom, as though mom and dad uh, was, um, uh, God was your, your heavenly father was your earthly father. Let me talk about something though that will apply to all of us adults in the room this morning. That's letter B, respect out of purpose. And we're talking about elevating Christ with my parents. Respect out of purpose. Now, if you are out from underneath mom and dad's rules, I believe that's um, everybody here except for the children, the, the little children, uh, the, the underage children, then uh, you have a duty not to obey them, but to respect them. Everybody look up here at me for a minute. Do you respect your mom? Your dad? Now, if they're, they've passed, you can't. But I'm talking about those that have living parents. Let me ask you a tougher question. Look up here at me. Do you respect your in-laws? You say, oh, my in You married her, sir. You married her parents, too. You're commanded to honor them, you know. Say, Pastor, you had me till there. You lost me. Now, hold on. You've got to love them, too. You've got to honor them. You may not like them, but you've got to honor them. This is commanded in God's Word as the first with promise. We're to respect our parents not because of the way that they raised us, or that they treat us, but because God says to do it. That's why we do it. It's a matter of principle. Let me give you some practical ways to honor your parents today. I encourage you to write these down. Number one, stay in touch. Stay in touch. Let them know what's going on in your life. Um, this is one I've had to work at. I'm an independent dude. I don't like calling my mom just to say, hey, what's up? Right? I'm fortunate now my mom lives 35 minutes up the road, and so I see her pretty regularly. But for a lot of my marriage, we've lived hours and hours apart, and I was guilty of sometimes going months without calling her, and that can't be. Let them know what's going on in your life. Stay in touch. Call them. Talk to them regularly. If you, if you live close to them, spend time with them. Show them that you love them. Number two, buy them presents for special occasions. Buy them presents for special occasions. I'm the oldest of seven, and so I sent out a mass text to all my siblings, and we gathered some money uh, from each of us, and we got my dad a gift card to the Apple store, and yesterday he purchased himself an Apple Watch. He sent us a picture and all said thank you, and that put a big smile on my face, that my father, I knew he wanted it, but my father pinches pennies. He, he doesn't like splurging for that kind of stuff on himself. Um... I can't say I've always been good at this, but listen, if your mom and dad have a birthday, call them, send them something, um, love on them, buy them presents for Christmas or whatever other special occasions they are on their anniversary. Notice that, identify that, both your parents and your in-laws. Look, sir, if your wife wants to buy your mom a present for her birthday, don't balk and say, why are you spending that much? Okay, be reasonable with what you buy, but... Make sure that you love and honor your parents and your in-laws. Number three, provide care for them in their own old age as long as you medically can. Provide care for them in their old age as long as you medically can. This is a sensitive topic, so I'm going to be careful here, but I want everybody to look up here and listen. One of the things that breaks my heart are nursing homes. Break my heart. 
I visit them regularly. I was, um, I was over visiting Jay's mom just a couple weeks ago. I guess about a week ago I was in there checking up on Miss Mary. You know, Jay took care of his mom as long as he medically could. She reached a point where he had to put her in there. She could have that constant supervision and help. We live in a day and age where everything's a throwaway society. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address something. I think maybe some of you, um, a trap that some of you would be tempted to fall into. Okay. Our society teaches us that money comes before family. Say, oh, no, it doesn't. Yes, absolutely it does. Many of your parents could have possibly shuffled you off to a daycare so that mom and dad could both go to work, so they could have more money, so they could buy a bigger house and buy nicer clothes and drive fancier cars. You know what that communicates to you when you're two years old? My parents love money and things more than they love me. Very subliminally, it communicates that. What happens is that two-year-old turns into a 42-year-old, and now mom and dad are old. Mom and dad were too busy making money to take care of me. Now I'm too busy making money to take care of them. I'm going to shuffle them into a nursing home, and I'll stop by and visit occasionally. But I've got to have my nice house, and my nice cars, and my nice clothes, and my nice things. Can you see the trap there? I wonder if so many people don't shove their parents in a nursing home because their parents didn't shove them in a daycare. Whether or not your parents shoved you into a daycare, you have a responsibility from God to honor them. Part of honoring them is not prematurely shoving them in a nursing home. Nursing homes have a place in a person's life at the right time. Say, well, pastor, you don't understand how inconvenient that's going to make my life. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What is that promise? That thy days may be long upon the earth. I have a, I have a, a really good feeling that if you will honor your parents and, and inconvenience yourself to honor them, that God is going to take care of your needs. Number four, and lastly, ask them for their advice. Ask them for their advice. Say, oh, but, but pastor, my parents are Catholic. Oh, pastor, but my parents aren't saved. Oh, pastor, but my, my, my parents are crazy. You know, <laughs> ask them for their advice anyway. You might listen, hang up, and go, that was weird. <laughs> but you know what's going to make them feel? It's going to make them feel special and an important part of your life. You never know, they might surprise you sometimes. My dad, when uh, he was um, a young man, he was uh, dating another girl, and it's not my mom, they were actually engaged. And um, his mom, being a secular woman, looked at my dad and said, she is bad news. Now this girl, he met this girl at church, she went to all the services, she was involved. My, my, my grandmother did not like this, this woman my dad was dating. And my dad said, well, you know, she doesn't have spiritual insight. She can't see it because she's just not saved. So my dad went off to Bible college and he got a call in the dorms. Personally, the other end, it was one of his friends back in Louisiana where he was from and said, hey, your fiancé is going on dates with this other guy behind your back. He said, no. 
He hopped in his car and drove straight down to Louisiana from Indiana and caught her in the act of going on a date with another guy. Broke his heart. My grandmother was right. She was bad news. My dad, a few months later, met my mother, brought her down to Louisiana, and my grandmother absolutely loved my mother. Lost woman, but had great insight on these things. Ask your parents for advice. Involve them in your life. Honor your parents. Inject Christ at the center. Is it your marriage? Is it your parenting? Is it your relationship with your mom and dad? How can you better elevate Christ at home? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. It's been a very practical sermon. I don't always preach these type of sermons on a Sunday morning, but I hope today it's been a help to you. How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life where I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I know that when I die, I know for certain I'm going to go to heaven because Jesus died for me and I've believed in Him and His sacrifice. I've accepted His gift of eternal life. If that's you, if that's your testimony, would you just raise your hand so I can see that right where you're sitting? You know that you've done that. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I'm just not sure. My friend, if that's you and you're here today, I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. And so in the privacy of the moment, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven, would you just acknowledge that by raising your hand? Right up and right down. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, something you touched on in the message today is very clear to me that I need to do a better job of putting Christ at the center of one of my home relationships. Pastor, would you pray for me that God would help me in that area? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I know Jesus needs to be a bigger part of our home. One more question this morning. Is there one here that would say, Pastor, life has really beaten down on me lately. And I'm carrying a pretty heavy burden. Would you pray that the Lord would help me as I go through this trial? That's you. Would you slip up your hand? Many hands. Many hands. Lord, I do pray for each one that has a hand raised. Some of the situations I'm aware of, many I'm not. But Lord, you know the heart. You know the need. You know the burden. Would you wrap them up in your love? Would you place them inside your refuge? Lord, today we pray for our homes that Satan is attacking. May we put you at the center of them. May we do marriage and parenting and being a child. May we do that your way. May we follow your structure. In Jesus' name. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The altar is open. I would encourage you to come and kneel. Listen, this would be a great time for you to take your spouse by the hand or your children by the hand and to come and kneel and praise a family. And tell... Tell the Lord together that you're going to put Christ at the center of your home. How about it today, fathers? Maybe that husbands, maybe that first step of spiritual leadership is to squeeze that wife's hand next to you and say, let's go pray together. Let's kneel here and pray together. Let's do our part to put Christ at the center of our home.